Book the First, Part Three of A Laodicean by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book the First, Part Three. By half past ten the next morning, Somerset was once more approaching the precincts of the building which had interested him the night before. Referring to his map, he had learnt that it bore the name of Stancy Castle or Castle de Stancy and he had been at once struck with its familiarity, though he had never understood its position in the county, believing it further to the west. If report spoke truly, there was some excellent vaulting in the interior, and a change of study from ecclesiastical to secular Gothic was not unwelcome for a while. The entrance gate was open now, and under the archway the outer ward was visible, a great part of it being laid out as a flower garden. This was in process of clearing from weeds and rubbish by a set of gardeners, and the soil was so encumbered that in rooting out the weeds such few hardy flowers as still remained in the beds were mostly brought up with them. The groove wherein the portcullis had run was as fresh as if only cut yesterday, the very tooling of the stone being visible. Close to this hung a bell-pool formed of a large wooden acorn attached to a vertical rod. Somerset's application brought a woman from the porter's door, who informed him that the day before having been the weekly show-day for visitors, it was doubtful if he could be admitted now. "'Who is at home?' said Somerset. "'Only Mr. Stancy,' the porteress replied. His dread of being considered an intruder was such that he thought at first there was no help for it but to wait till the next week. But he had already, through his want of effrontery, lost a sight of many interiors, whose exhibition would have been rather a satisfaction to the inmates than a trouble. It was inconvenient to wait. He knew nobody in the neighbourhood from whom he could get an introductory letter. He turned and passed the woman, crossed the ward where the gardeners were at work, over a second and smaller bridge, and up a flight of stone stairs, open to the sky, along whose steps sunburnt Tudor soldiers and other renowned dead men had doubtless many times walked. It led to the principal door on this side. Thence he could observe the walls of the lower court in detail, and the old mosses with which they were padded, mosses that from time immemorial had been burned brown every summer, and every winter had grown green again. The arras lit and the electric wire that entered it, like a worm uneasy at being unearthed, were distinctly visible now. So also was the clock, not, as he had supposed, a chronometer coeval with the fortress itself, but new and shining, bearing the name of a recent maker. The door was opened by a bland, intensely shaven man out of livery, who took Somerset's name, a politely worded request, to be allowed to inspect the architecture of the more public portions of the castle. He pronounced the word architecture in the tone of a man who knew and practised that art. For, he said to himself, if she thinks I am a mere idle tourist, it will not be so well. No such uncomfortable consequences ensued. Mr. Stancy had great pleasure in giving Mr. Somerset full permission to walk through whatever parts of the building he chose. He followed the butler into the inner buildings of the fortress, the ponderous thickness of whose walls made itself felt like a physical presence. An internal stone staircase, ranged round four sides of a square, was next revealed, leading at the top of one flight into a spacious hall, which seemed to occupy the whole area of the keep. From this apartment, a corridor floored with black oak led to the more modern wing, where light and air were treated in a less gingerly fashion. Here, 
passages were broader than in the oldest portion, and upholstery enlisted in the service of the fine arts hid to a great extent the coldness of the walls. Somerset was now left to himself, and, roving freely from room to room, he found time to inspect the different objects of interest that abounded there. Not all the chambers, even of the habitable division, were in use as dwelling rooms, though these were still numerous enough for the wants of an ordinary country family. In a long gallery with a coved ceiling of arabesques which had once been gilded, hung a series of paintings representing the past personages of the de Stancy line. It was a remarkable array, even more so on account of the incredibly neglected condition of the canvases than for the artistic peculiarities they exhibited. Many of the frames were dropping apart at their angles, and some of the canvas was so dingy that the face of the person depicted was only distinguishable as the moon through mist. For the colour they had now, they might have been painted during an eclipse, while, to judge by the webs tying them to the wall, the spiders that ran up and down their backs were such as to make the fair originals shudder in their graves. He wondered how many of the lofty foreheads and smiling lips of this pictorial pedigree could be treated as true reflections of their prototypes. Some were willfully false, no doubt, many more so by unavoidable accident and want of skill. Somerset felt that it required a profounder mind than his to disinter from the lumber of conventionality the lineaments that rarely sat in the painter's presence, and to discover their history behind the curtain of mere tradition. The painters of this long collection were those who usually appeared in such places, Holbein, Jansen and Van Dyck, Sir Peter, Sir Geoffrey, Sir Joshua and Sir Thomas. Their sitters too had mostly been sirs, Sir William, Sir John or Sir George de Stancy, some undoubtedly having a nobility stamped upon them beyond that conferred by their robes and orders, and others not so fortunate. Their respected ladies hung by their sides, feeble and watery or fat and comfortable as the case might be. Also, their fathers and mothers-in-law, their brothers and remoter relatives, their contemporary reigning princes, and their intimate friends. Of the distances pure, there ran through the collection a mark by which they might surely have been recognised as members of one family, this feature being the upper part of the nose. Every one, even if lacking other points in common, had the special indent at this point of the face, sometimes moderate in degree, sometimes excessive. While looking at the pictures, which, though not in his regular line of study, interested Somerset more than the architecture because of their singular dilapidation, it occurred to his mind that he had in his youth been schoolfellow for a very short time with a pleasant boy bearing a surname attached to one of the paintings, the name of Ravensbury. The boy had vanished, he knew not how. He thought he had been removed from school suddenly on account of ill health. But the recollection was vague and Somerset moved on to the rooms above and below. In addition to the architectural details of which he had as yet obtained but glimpses, there was a great collection of old movables and other domestic artwork, all more than a century old, and mostly lying as lumber. There were suites of tapestry hangings, common and fine, green and scarlet leatherwork on which the gilding was still but little injured, venerable damask curtains, quilted silk table covers, ebony cabinets, work satin window cushions, carved bedsteads, and embroidered bed furniture which had apparently screened no sleeper for these many years. Downstairs there was also an interesting collection of armour, together with several huge trunks and coffers. 
A great many of them had been recently taken out and cleaned, as if a long dormant interest in them was suddenly revived. Doubtless they were those which had been used by the living originals of the phantoms that looked down from the frames. This excellent hoard of suggestive designs for woodwork, metalwork, and work of other sorts induced, some said, to divert his studies from the ecclesiastical direction to acquire some new ideas from the objects here for domestic application. Yet for the present he was inclined to keep his sketchbook closed and his ivory rule folded and devote himself to a general survey. Emerging from the ground floor by a small doorway, he found himself on a terrace to the northeast and on the other side than that by which he had entered. It was bounded by a parapet, breast high, over which a view of the distant country met the eye, stretching from the foot of the slope to a distance of many miles. Somerset went and leaned over, and looked down upon the tops of the bushes beneath. The prospect included the village he had passed through on the previous day, and amidst the green lights and shades of the meadows he could discern the red brick chapel whose recalcitrant inmate had so engrossed him. Before his attention had long strayed over the incident which romanticised that utilitarian structure, he became aware that he was not the only person who was looking from the terrace towards that point of the compass. At the right-hand corner, in a niche of the curtain wall, reclined a girlish shape, and, asleep on the bench over which she leaned, was a white cat, the identical person, as it seemed, that had been taken into the carriage at the chapel door. Somerset began to muse on the probability or otherwise of the backsliding Baptist and this young lady resulting in one and the same person, and almost without knowing it he found himself deeply hoping for such a unity. The object of his inspection was idly leaning, and this somewhat disguised her figure. He might have been tall or short, curvilinear or angular. She carried a light sunshade which she fitfully twirled, until, thrusting it back over her shoulder, her head was revealed sufficiently to show that she wore no hat or bonnet. This token of her being an inmate of the castle and not a visitor rather damped his expectations. But he persisted in believing her look towards the chapel must have a meaning in it, till she suddenly stood erect and revealed herself as short in stature, almost dumpy, at the same time giving him a distinct view of her profile. She was not at all like the heroine of the chapel, he saw the dinted nose of the distances outlined with Holbein shadowlessness against the blue-green of the distant wood. It was not the distancy face with all its original specialities. It was, so to speak, a defective reprint of that face, for the nose tried hard to turn up and deal utter confusion to the family shape. As for the rest of the countenance, Somerset was obliged to own that it was not beautiful. Nature had done there many things that she ought not to have done and left undone much that she should have executed. It would have been decidedly plain, but for a precious quality which no perfection of chiselling can give when the temperament denies it, and which no facial irregularity can take away, a tender affectionateness which might almost be called a yearning, such as is often seen in the women of Correggio when they are painted in profile. But the plain features of Mr. Stancy, who she undoubtedly was, were rather severely handled by Somerset's judgment, owing to his impression of the previous night. A beauty of a sort would have been lent by the flexuous contours of the mobile parts, but for that unfortunate condition the poor girl was burdened with, of having to hand on a traditional feature 
with which she did not find herself otherwise in harmony. She glanced at him for a moment, and showed by an imperceptible movement that he had made his presence felt. Not to embarrass her, Somerset hastened to withdraw, at the same time that she passed round to the other side of the terrace, followed by the cat, in whom Somerset could imagine a certain denominational cast of countenance, notwithstanding her company. But, as white cats are much alike each other at a distance, it was reasonable to suppose this creature was not the same one as that possessed by the beauty. End of Book the First, Part 3